Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you and looking forward to the Summer Jaguar Festival just a week to go. The excitement's building. We're all getting very excited here. Uh, One message for you, though. Please don't turn up to Bister Heritage on the 4th of July without a ticket. This is a ticket-only event this year. Covid restrictions and all of that, track and trace, etc., etc. You know the drill by now. Uh, so it's just to remind you, please don't turn up to Bista Heritage for the Summer Jaguar Festival unless you have a ticket. That's my important message out of the way. Now onwards with the show and lots to fit in this episode and a really nice interview with Emma Price coming up. Uh, it's quite an inspirational story. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. It's all to come very soon, of course. Tom Robinson with us getting ready for Castle Coon, the next round of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Championship as well. But first, I thought I'd give a bit of a preview on what I'll be presenting on the live stage at the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista next week. It's a full day packed with fantastic interviews, some of whom have been on this podcast before. We're going to be bringing them live on a stage with a big screen TV as well to bring some of the highlights of the show all into one place. We'll also be recording all of that footage so you'll be able to watch it back if you haven't been able to join us at the Summer Jaguar Festival through our social media streams as well. And it all starts at 10 to 10 in the morning on 4th of July. I'll be bright and breezy and giving everyone a welcome and a preview of what's to look forward to. We'll be meeting some of the trade and some of the sponsors of the show that have enabled it to go ahead this year. And then the first of our exciting interviews where we look at the history and the anniversaries of the XK8 and X-Type with Peter Leake. You heard him here on this podcast. He's a previous employee of Jaguar. Worked through that very, very exciting era for Jaguar. Training dealerships and being a part of the XK8 launch. Peter Leake, he'll be joining us at 1030 in the morning before 11 o'clock when we join the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust and Tony Merigold to talk us through some of the cars that they've brought to do high-speed demonstration laps around the Bista Heritage racetrack. Sir John Egan joins us at 11.30. He was the boss of Jaguar in the 1980s. He was the man who took Jaguar out of the grip of British Leyland and turned the company around. He was also the boss during that fantastic era of TWR Jaguar wins in motorsport and at Le Mans, of course. A fascinating interview that's going to be. So John Egan then at 11.30. At midday, we've got some live music before SNG Barrett join us. And Julian Barrett and I will be looking through the parade cars that are celebrating the first Jaguar Le Mans win and, of course, 60 years of the Jaguar E-Type. Then it's our big interview. It's going to be great to talk to him in person after we interviewed him on this very podcast last year. Kevin McLeod, you'll know him, of course, from Channel 4's Grand Designs. He'll be joining me on the live stage at one o'clock to chat about all things design and cars. And I'm going to be asking him a few 
difficult questions about what goes on behind the scenes of that Grand Designs programme. I've been involved in a house renovation. Oh, on answers. <laughs> we'll be quizzing him on all of that and more. Plus, XJ40s with David Marks, our technical guru, just before a musical break takes us to the Concours and Pride of Ownership Awards presented by Salon Privé. David Bagley's going to be with us to do that because, of course, the winner of the Jaguar E-Type class at the Summer Jaguar Festival's Concours d'Elegance will go on to have that VIP entry to Salon Privé, a very exclusive event at Blenheim Palace in September later this year. Kevin McLeod, of course, will then be giving us his car of the show. We'll let him wander around, choose one that's good, and then we'll have a final chat with the chairman of the organising clubs, the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, and our friends over at the Jaguar Drivers Club as well. That's what I'll be presenting on the live stage as part of the Summer Jaguar Festival. Hope you'll join us for that. Hope you'll enjoy it. And if you're not able to be with us, then we will be recording all of that and we'll be uh, feeding it out to you over the coming weeks through the Jaguar Enthusiast Club social media streams. Now, the 4th of July and the Summer Jaguar Festival isn't your only opportunity to have a bit of Jaguar fix this summer. We've got another great event planned for August. In fact, Saturday the 21st of August, to be precise, when we head off to the UK's longest hill climb track. It's Harewood Hill Climb in North Yorkshire. And we're due a spectacular day out there on Saturday the 21st of August. And you can book your tickets for this now. You've got two choices of how you want to enjoy this day. You can either go all out, book yourself four track runs up the hill climb so that you can enjoy your Jaguar in an untimed but high speed run. Or you can just come for a more sedate day. Bring a picnic. Park your Jaguar on the show field. Put down the rug and chill out for the day and watch everyone else hooning up the track while you chill out and have a chat with like-minded Jaguar fans. Whatever you're into, whatever pace of life you fancy on the 21st of August, it'll be a great day out and you can book it now via the JEC website, jc.org.uk forward slash events. Uh, just navigate there to the Harewood Hill Climb event and you can buy your tickets. Just £5 a car if you want to just come and enjoy the show field and watch the action. Or, of course, you can buy those track runs in groups of four. You buy the groups of four and if we have any more left over on the day, you can buy sort of top-up runs uh, when we're there on the day. So uh, loads of opportunities to enjoy your car at its best at Harewood Hill Climb. And nice to be heading north as well in the UK. And I've got to say, I know Harewood Hill Climb very well as a venue. It is stunning. And even if you're not into all of the track stuff, just come. Because on a beautiful day, when you sat on the top of the valley there, overlooking the track and overlooking the beautiful views across Wharfdale, there is nowhere nicer to be. Honestly, it is a fantastic day out. So Go and have a look at that, jc.org.uk forward slash events. You'll find all the booking information on there. And we'll tell you more details of that as the event unfolds over the next few weeks. Saturday, the 21st of August at the Harewood Hill Climb in North Yorkshire. Get booking now. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, on this week's Hall of Fame, we go to Northern Ireland and actually a racing driver who has very, very strong links with Jaguar, but probably doesn't get the recognition he so very well deserves. We're talking about John Watson, aren't we, Richard? We do indeed, Wayne, or Watty, as most people in the paddock have known him over the years. Um, 
rapidly heading for that senior status, you know, in terms of his age now. He was born in Belfast in 1946. But he's had a remarkable career, and I think to do it justice, we sort of need to break it into the three things, really, which is his single-seater career, which was extensive, his sports car career, which you, you just very briefly touched upon there, and his post-motorsport career that's seen him do all sorts of things like run racing schools and also still be a commentator on world sports car racing. Where did it all begin for him then? I certainly know it was 1972, and I certainly know it was in a Cosworth-powered car. Yeah, it actually went back further than that. If you go right back to the start of his career, obviously, in 1969, he was in European Formula 2, uh, driving for uh, there were so many unusual team names when you go back actually Team Ireland and then in 1771 he continued in Formula 2 but under his own steam and his own entry uh, and he really did move around quite a lot he, he drove for a, a guy called Alan McCall who had a team and then he went to the Chevron racing team and he even drove in the 1972 World Sports Car Championship um, for Team William Tuckett but those were very very early days and I think what he did, he was trying to find his depth. He did quite a lot of sports car racing because in 73 also, he was there with golf racing. He was there again in Formula 2. He was in European Formula 5000 with Hexagon. And in 73, he found himself in a Brabham known, uh, owned and run by none other than Motor Racing Developments, which, of course, was owned by one Bernard Charles Eccleston. He actually had some very early successes, didn't he? Uh, first World Championship points came at Monaco a couple of years later. But then he mm. seemed to bounce around a lot of teams after that. Well, he did. I mean, his first sort of real, if you can call it that, real Formula One uh, exposure was back in the days of racing in early March. We talked recently about Max Mosley, you know, and their success. And there was a March Cosworth 721, to which you refer to the Cosworth engine, being run by a team called Goldie Hexagon Racing in non-championship events. And he went there and competed in the 73 season. Uh, he raced at the British Grand Prix in a customer, Brabham Ford, a BT37, as I recall. And then on to the US uh, Grand Prix, where he drove the third works Brabham. But none of those outings were particularly successful. Uh, I think he ran out of fuel at one of the events and had an engine failure in the US, I think it was. So, truthfully, it really started to come together for him when he scored his first world championship point in the 1974 Monte Carlo Grand Prix, driving for that unusually named Goldie Hexagon Racing. Well, he was known later on for driving for McLaren in those famous red and white livery cars. But I've got to be honest, whenever I think of John Watson, I always think of him in the John Player Special liveried uh, black and gold lotuses. Yeah, actually, if you look back, John's thought it rise to prominence, if you will. He secured his first world championship um, when he was third at the French Grand Prix in 1976. And in, later in that year, actually came his first win, driving for Roger Penske at the Austrian Grand Prix. Prior to that, John was always seen with an immensely dark, bushy beard, quite a menacing-looking character. But uh, as the story goes, he had a bet with Penske about the outcome of the race and uh, sadly lost it. So at that point, John promptly lost his beard and to my knowledge, never grew one back again after that. But it established him very, very well. And in 1977, he went down to the South African Grand Prix. Um, he managed to score a point there. And I think, if I remember right, he, he got the fastest lap as well. But that race was tragically overshadowed by the death of Tom Price when you know he got hit by a fire extinguisher when a marshal ran across the track um, and didn't realise you know the speed, the closing speed of Tom's car. And I think all of that really had an effect on him. Uh, he drove the Brabham Alfa Romeo and then he went on 
Uh, he took pole position at the Monaco Grand Prix um, and he got the car into the top 10 no fewer than 14 times, often on the front two rows. So, yeah, a very competitive start and his rise to prominence was recognised very quickly. Uh, in 78, he managed um, a season of... Um, a more successful season of race finishes. But it really was in 79 when he went to uh, Marlborough McLaren, or Team Marlborough McLaren, as it was then, prior to Ron Dennis joining it. And really, from that point on, his career took a real turn um, into into a much better place. Well, of course, at that point, McLaren hadn't won a race for some three or four years. Uh, he took them to victory in 1981 at Silverstone. Yes, he did. You look at the photographs, you, you can find those again, you know, anywhere on the web. But the, the British crowd were absolutely ecstatic. It was the MP41, John Barnard's uh, first carbon composite um, designed car. Uh, it hadn't won a race, you're quite right, up until then. And then in John's hands, it went to Silverstone and it stormed to an, a, a very memorable victory. And the, the crowd were absolutely ecstatic. And it put John right up there where he should be on the, uh, you know, on the podium, on the top step. Uh, it was a real big breakthrough as well for and we talked about this when we talked about John Barnard because later that year of course what you referred to it when we spoke about John Barnard was that enormous crash he had at the Italian Grand Prix coming through the high speed Lesmos and crashed backwards into the barriers uh, the car literally torn in half and John when he stepped out of it I think realized that similar accidents would have previously proven fatal but being in John's incredibly strong carbon composite design chassis he walked away to tell the story and uh yeah people often refer back to that as indeed you have done in the past big accident and this is why i mentioned that he is a driver that really should get a lot more recognition because at this point in formula one history you just had the departure of james hunt at monaco and there were no mm. british drivers left in the championship apart from mm. john watson he was the only one no. He was indeed. He was the only British one in that lineup at that time. Uh, in fact, through to the end of his particular driving career in Formula One, he was the only Brit in there. And, um, you know, he made the most of it. He was commercially astute. He had some good personal sponsors backing him, as well as the team sponsors that were obviously in a paid drive. And he was a stalwart of the, of the British driver in the championship for a number of years. So now we can actually turn to part two as, as you sort of divide it up in his career, Richard, because... His attention turned to sports car driving uh, in the early 80s and his first appearance was in that famous Rothmans liveried Porsche with none other than Stefan Beloff. And it was his arrival in sports cars that would take him on to then, of course, race for Jaguar. was indeed. I mean, the, the, again, referring to photographs, there's a great team shot of him uh, in his Rothmans uh, overalls alongside not just Stefan Beloff, but Derek Bell with Jackie X, Henri Pescarolo, others who, you know, are all legendary names. And what he, in 84, really, turned, as you say, to sports car racing. Uh, Stefan was a hot shoe at the time. He was also driving for Ken Tyrrell in, in Formula One. And he was regarded as, you know, one of the real super rising stars. And, of course, they went off to the Fuji 1000K race um, and probably won it. So, you know, it established Wattie also as a, as a good sports car driver as well. He then linked in to one of your favourite people, like you and I often talk about, of course, and that was he went and also got involved in Bob Tullius's Group 44 Jaguar team lineup um, at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, driving the IMSA spec extra hour five. So he really did then, and, and when talking to John in, in later career, he really did enjoy sports car racing. It was something he got great pleasure from. Yeah, very key moment in Jaguar's racing history, this, because 
it gets glossed over sometimes in the story of TWR and, of course, the Silk Cut Jags, that they were the uh, people that took Jaguar back to Le Mans for the first time since 1959. It actually wasn't. It was Bob Tullius who'd been racing Jaguars under the Group 44 banner for some years uh, over mm. in America, in IMSA, and... Uh, had brought this car over as an invitation class to Le Mans in that year. They weren't particularly competitive because they were built to different specifications. They were built for different regulations. But I'm pretty certain, and I know from interviewing Bob Tullius before, that that was what he thought was his inroad into representing Jaguar at Le Mans. Unfortunately, they weren't too comfortable with an American representing the British brand at the time. And so Sir John Egan famously made that relationship work with Tom Walkinshaw and TWR got mm. all the glory. But over in America, mm. uh, Group 44 had been doing a prototype sports car racing for Jaguar for some time. Yeah, they had indeed. And Bob had done an amazing job. We talked before about the way his team looked and how it was turned out. And in fact, what he actually led uh, at one point, led in the first hour of the 84 race in that car. But of course, as you say, different specs. And he did a remarkable job doing that because he was up against, you know, the 956 and the Lancia LC2s. And it gave Watty the chance, you know, for that brief moment to put the Group 44 car out ahead of the field. Um, but they failed to finish, I think, with engine problems, didn't they? And they finished way back in, they were classified, I think, way back in the high 20s at the end of that. But, of course, then he also got that opportunity, as you say, to drive for Tom. Bob had lost, you know, the Jaguar contract to TWR Jaguar. And in 87, he lined up in the XJR8 alongside Jan Lammers. Um, when they won a total of three championship races, actually. I mean, they won at Harama, great place, wonderful circuit, Monza and Fuji. And um, John continued to add to his tally of Le Mans. You know, he went there seven times in the course of his career, between 73 and 1990. Only finished 11th highest, um, which for him was his career best. Uh, in his last start in 1990, he drove, a, a, you know, the mighty Porsche 962C for Richard Lloyd Racing. Um, alongside Bruno Giacomelli and Alan Berg, two other very famous drivers of their era. He went into broadcasting, but just before he did that, he had an involvement at Jordan, didn't he? He did, yes. When Eddie Jordan went from Formula 3000 into Formula 1, um, you know, fellow Irishman, great choice. Um, EJ phoned him up and got him to do the shakedown on the first 1990 Jordan. So there he was doing a test. And we mustn't forget, just before we come to his post-race career, you know, he went back to McLaren in the 80s. He, at the end of the 83 season, when his talks with Ron broke down, principally over, over money, we had the 84-85 lineup of Lauder and Prost. And in 85, Nicky had damaged his wrist at Spa, I think it was. Um, yeah, it was. It was qualifying at Spa. And Watty came back and uh, drove uh, Nicky's McLaren at Brand Satch, uh, which didn't, you know, wasn't a great result for him, but it put him back in a number one car for one race with McLaren as well. And I think that was the first time, actually, any driver has driven a number one car since Ronnie Peterson when the system first began, when Jackie Stewart retired at the end of the season, because he was put into a car that was carrying that number just for one race. But no, when he when he left his racing, going back to your, your point, he retired from racing. He opened up a, a racing school at Silverstone, which ran quite successfully for a while. Um, he did that Jordan test we've just talked about. And then he sat alongside great broadcasters like Andrew Merritt, Richard Nichols, Allard Kauf and Ben Edwards, 
doing Eurosport commentary uh, in Formula One. I think the last time he was part of that team was back in the mid to late 90s, 1996. And then things changed, all the Formula One contracts changed again and what he was not included. But he continued to go alongside uh, Sky Sports. He did the pay-per-view coverage with Ben Edwards. And these days he still commentates. He's involved in, I think it's the World GT Challenge, where he commentates alongside three other commentators with all of that wealth of experience behind him for for the listeners and the viewers and of course in the late 90s murray walker had been commentating british touring car championship for some time murray walker then Mm. left to keep up with the formula one calendar that was getting ever more populated with races and john Mm. watson replaced murray walker doing the british touring car championship alongside charlie cox i think it was the the monday driver yeah yeah, 1998 to 2001, I, I took over the Touring Car Championship as administrator mid-2001, and there was all sorts of issues with the championship at that time, principally not having enough money. And some of those guys who'd been involved with Alan's previous Super Touring era, like Watty and Charlie and others, quite frankly, you know, they, they wouldn't and didn't want to work with the championship, which was really an embryonic start to touring cars that was started the revival to what we see today which Alan has you know built back into a very successful championship so yes back to Watty hugely successful career been there seen it done it and Dudley still being there seeing it and doing it our latest inductee of the Hall of Fame here on the JC podcast John Watson Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Amongst the many Jaguars out on track at the recent Jaguar Enthusiast Club track day at Blyton Park, there was one particular lady driving one particular Jaguar F-Type that was taking it a little more seriously than the rest. She was actually practising for her debuts in motorsport and we'll find out more about the stories we talked to Emma Price. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Hi Wayne, how are you? Very good, thanks. Now, uh, Emma Price, owner of an F-Type, let's go right the way back to the beginning first of all and explain where this love for Jaguars and love for cars came from for you. Uh, For me? Uh, So so my love for cars um, has been... You know, I, I loved cars as a kid. My dad was very much into, was, I say is, very much into cars. Um, and we also used to watch the Bond films and we had this sort of strange obsession with Aston Martins and watching sort of all the gadgets and missiles fly out of the ends of the cars and the, the tech involved. And we, yeah, we just had this affinity for Aston Martins and therefore growing up because it was what my dad wanted. It was something that I always wanted. I always wanted an Aston Martin. Um, and I've been sort of very fortunate and sort of came into a position during lockdown where um, I was able to purchase my first car. So I went and looked for an Aston Martin. Uh, I was looking at the V8 Vantage. I was looking at the N430 edition with sort of the stiffened chassis and the suspension. Um, and I quite liked the slightly sportier feel on the N430. It was limited edition, so I thought I could get a bit more life out of it. And I quite like the lipstick front on it as well. Um, and I found one in Cham- uh, called Champagne Edition N430, um, Aston Martin Vantage. And uh, it had 
it was this light silver with this white lipstick and the spoiler and beautiful alloys in an al- sort of alicantra interior. And uh, I nearly went and bought it. And my brother, my younger brother, who was also a massive car enthusiast, he said, have you tried, have you, have you taken a look at the Jag? I was like, no, I haven't. And sort of alongside, my dad had done this track day up at Croft uh, for his birthday. And he'd driven a selection of cars um, from Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and then a Porsche. And then the last car he drove on this particular track day was a Jaguar um, V6S, supercharged. And, you know, for his less level of driving experience, he spent a lot of his life on the road. He's, I'd put him up there with being a sort of fairly decent driver you know I'm obviously biased because he's my father um and he taught me to drive and and uh, he went that that Jaguar was by far the most enjoyable car on track it wasn't too powerful it had good handling so the Porsche was was good but it was also fairly you know it was what you expect it was a car that you expect to do well and therefore it was a little bit dull in the sense of it's a Porsche. Everyone knows what a Porsche is. There's no excitement. But with the Jag, it sort of had this extra element of sort of uh, pop, bang and fizzle and everything else. And Extra element of said, peril, perhaps. <laughs> yes. And, you know, rear-wheel drive and it makes a lot more noise. It's a bit more exciting. And he just he said it's just a brilliant car and he loved it. And my brother also likes to spec out his cars as well. He went, seriously, go and drive the car. And so I did. And I went to meet a guy down south who had a V8 um, Jag. It was 2014, so one of the sort of more original versions of the of the Jag uh, F-Type. And I drove it and about ran it off the road because my first, <laughs> my only other car I've ever really driven <laughs> is, a, is a two-litre diesel Golf. So I mean, my first... <laughs> I was going to ask you about this because, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a few people listening to this doing a bit of a double take now thinking, hang on a minute, she's just gone out and buy, the, you know, looking to buy these supercars and uh, what's she been driving every day? Was there an intimidation factor to these cars when you were looking at them? Absolutely. So um, I have I my I didn't need to buy a car until I was 27. So bearing in mind that I didn't actually really start driving until I was 27. And when I bought my car, so it's it's kind of there's kind of this double thing. If I drove lots of company cars, my crew car was like a Honda C CRV, which is you know it's a four by four. It it gets you from A to B. And you know I've driven lots of higher cars, but. I didn't need to physically buy my own car until I was 27 and I moved out of Nottingham. And so the first car I'd ever bought, I was like, I always have wanted to, I've always wanted a Golf. It was, it's a practical car. You can fit loads of stuff in it. It also goes reasonably well and it's fairly reliable, you know, classic German brand. Also can be seen as a fairly boring car to some people. I know they really don't like the Golf because it's just a Golf. But I was desperate to have one and I'd hired a Golf on previous occasions. And so I found this two litre um, turbo diesel, dark blue, metallic blue Golf. It's a 61 plate. And I and I got it back in, I was four years ago now. Um, and I managed to pick the whole thing up for four grand with a full service history. And it's been brilliant. And I've taken it everywhere. I've taken it over to Wales and camping in the mountain. And then, you know, a few years later, I'm going, right, let's buy a Jack or an Aston Martin. So yeah, the intimidation factor of jumping from a two litre diesel to a a bigger engine, I was like, I'm not entirely sure I know how to handle the car. 
that became very apparent when I got in a rear wheel drive V8 um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and didn't know what to do with the power. And so I loved the Jag, just the V8 was too much um, for me. And I thought I need a step in between. Mm. And I then went back to my sort of brother and dad and we were discussing is that I drove the V6S on track. It was brilliant. Lots of people talk about how well balanced it is. And so I went to drive one and I, I drove a soft top and then I eventually found sort of the coupe and the coupe felt right for me. I really enjoyed sitting in the cabin with the panoramic roof. Um, and I wanted to make use of the car more on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, and eventually I spent ages looking for one that you could find them in gray or silver and I was desperate to find like a red one or, or a white one, red or white. And then I eventually found a red one up at Redline uh, in Harrogate, Yorkshire and um, fell in love with it. It had most of the additional extra packs on it. So it had the panoramic roof, it had the sort of bigger alloys. It didn't have those ceramic brakes, which I was okay with. Um, it had the extra sound pack and sort of the lane assist. I'm not sure, I, I don't know why I wanted that because I'm not going to use it. Um, <laughs> and uh, sort of cruise control, which also I haven't really used. Um, yeah, and I found this car and it was just perfect. I went up there, looked at it and just, it was it was amazing and the color is a, it's the solid red it's a solid there's no metallic nature to it it's just a, and it pops really really well even on a sort of a dull cloudy day and it was just the right one you know you know when you found the right one and so i signed on the dotted line and then it said yeah i'll have it and uh, drove it away and that was that was it i spent 1500 pounds in fuel on my first week driving that car i just couldn't stop i just i couldn't stop it, it was like a it's the most expensive sighted. bottle of milk you ever bought wasn't it it was it was oh it was so worth it I drove, yeah 1500 quid in fuel driving it to my parents letting my parents drive it and my dad driving it and taking my brother out and the, it was so nice to do that because my um my brother has a has a brain tumor and we did a cars and coffee event in 2019 which kind of comes taking you back onto the sort of love for cars. And this event, when we went to this cars and coffee event in 2019, he got the opportunity to go in a Ferrari with, um, with a guy called uh, Francois Pog, or he's called Pog on online and on social media. And he's a super nice guy. And he took my brother for a ride across London on this cars and coffee event. And it made him smile so much. And so part of the aspect for getting the car was also one to you know give us some sort of smiles and some really good memories and uh, also to take the opportunity to be able to give other people sort of smiles and amazing memories by also giving them you know passenger rides in the Jaguar so for me it was I want to be able to have a have a car that I can enjoy but I want other people to enjoy it as well and I want people to have experiences with it I think there's this element of there's there's two elements with motorsport and and cars and there's this the there's the art nature of it car the car is a piece of art and it's a thing to look at it's a thing of beauty but it's also a physical involvement where you can gain life experience you can gain skills you can make memories with cars you can travel in them you can go and visit other countries and and have days out and you know those memories are things that technically you can't buy 
you've bought it via the car. But yeah, no, it's just one of those things where it all came together. And to be able to take my brother out in, in the Jag and we have, we've just had such good times in it. Um, yeah, and then obviously lockdown happened, which meant we haven't been able to quite do quite as much. But boy, have I have I made every effort to go to the supermarket in it <laughs> to pick up my loaf of bread and my toilet roll. <laughs> I imagine. Oh, you know, it's we always say that on this podcast that the cars are interesting and we love to talk about engines and technical specifications here. But actually what makes cars really interesting is the stories of the people behind them and how they interact with people and how they change lives and, as you say, give people experiences. And, you know, often we, we talk to people on this podcast that have had cars in their family for 40, 50 years, you know, and their, yeah. their father drove it or their grandfather drove it. And every little Mark and Nick has a memory for them. You know, it was what the car they were brought home from the hospital in when they were born. Those amazing yeah. stories are what makes historic vehicles so very special. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's great to hear... Someone else sort of share that as well, really. But your journey into this car has been quite interesting there. I expect it's probably quite indicative of the modern car ownership pattern now, where to generations before us, Emma, buying a car was something you did at 17. It was a rite of passage. It was the start of your freedom as you became an adult. Life's a little bit different now, isn't it? And you kind of, as you have done you end up not buying a car at all until you're much later on in life and then you go all in and buy something amazing like an F-Type. Do you think when you look at your peers uh, and you look around you, do you think that's a, that's a common pattern of car ownership now? Um, I Actually, I, I know there's a lot sort of being talked about in the news about there's less people sort of applying. I can't remember what the actual statistics are, but there's a lot of, there's apparently the younger generation aren't necessarily learning to drive as quickly as as we would have done. I I was quite, I guess, late passing my test. I, I started learning at 16. I passed my test just before I went to university and then I didn't really need to drive until at least graduation and then I'd secured a job afterwards. Um, so I'm not, I can't really speak for sort of the younger, I say the younger generation, I'm, I'm, I'm 31, right? So, um, so I learned to drive, I didn't need to drive. And I've, I did want a car and I know a lot of people around me had cars and it was, I was biting my teeth mm. for the whole time because I was always reliant. If I wasn't in Nottingham, which actually has quite a good transport infrastructure, um, I then needed a car. So I moved down to Cambridgeshire and the, the actual physical infrastructure for Cambridgeshire is shocking. Like it's just not exist. It's just non-existent. I could rant for hours about how bad the transport infrastructure is in Cambridge, but I won't bore you with that. <laughs> um, and so the only reason I got a car is because actually I needed to based on where I was living now where based on where i live now um i i did that didn't mean i didn't want a car I, I i loved cars and i wanted one but financially at the time and the investment and sort of you know i i, I do appreciate advice from my parents and my friends and even my friends who had cars okay you don't really need one right now so don't bother getting one and you've got this cost and this cost and everything else and if you're moving around you've got to find somewhere to park it and so i didn't need one but i really wanted one because i was i did feel like i was missing out on you know my first sort of proper banger you know 600 pound I don't know, Renault Clio from the scrapyard, barely running um, vehicle. You know, my partner had that. He got himself an Astra and I would sort of be, I would drive the Astra and 
we'd go round in it and go on holidays in it. And it was a great car. I loved the Astra, actually. It's got the book quite good gearboxes. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I did, I, so I do feel like I missed out on that. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I was then able to, I had my eye on having a golf. And it's like, I'm having that and nothing else. I, I am going to wait <laughs> and I will buy a golf. And that's, that's, that is what I did. Um, and then, yeah, I've just, I don't know, the, the second car and the, having the Jag came around quite quickly because I'm, I, I don't have kids. Um, at the minute, um, I so I'm I'm able to I have I have a little bit of sort of leisurely income, and I was like you know most people sort of wait until they're a bit older or the, they've had kids and the kids have left to have the cars. And when I went to look at the Aston Martins, one of the things that became quite apparent to me quite quickly was that the some of the cars had barely been driven, mm-hmm. um, and people had bought these cars as sort of like a, a retirement present and then I had thought there was one man which was quite quite sad really he he always wanted this Vantage Vantage S he bought it and then he felt ill and has he put he put 200 miles on it that's all it had on it and then he'd had to sell it and that made me quite sad that this person hadn't had the opportunity to really enjoy um enjoy his car very much before he then had to sell it and with that in my mind and the fact that I, I'm sort of free of children and sort of the sort of trappings that come with that, <laughs> it, it just made sense. It made sense. It's like, well, I'll, do you know what? I'm going to do it now. I'm going to yeah. do it now yeah. and I'm going to get the car and I've got no experience. I'm just going to jump in and see what happens. And so far, so far, so good. And actually meeting everyone on the Blyton Park track day, was was really really nice mainly because as you said to do with the story and learning about their cars and the stories and where they've come from and the fact that people have you know hand built these and put all of this time and effort into producing something that they love absolutely that and learning about these oh yeah just just kind of the people on the on the blighton park track day it was wonderful i spoke to one of them in the previous episode to this uh neil mugglestone who's actually built himself an xk 180 that was his first time out on track at blighton with that car and you can see the blood sweat and tears over a decade of hard work in his garage that's gone into that so uh, yeah if you want to hear that story uh, check out the previous episode of the jc podcast but just an example of those people that you meet when you interact with people in the jaguar enthusiast club and i think your story into ownership of a of your f-type there is and your philosophy behind it is rare but brilliant because it's often said about big houses you know you can only afford a big house with a big garden once you're much older just at the point in time when you don't want to spend all your time gardening and, and, and fixing a building you know it's one of those things in life you do the sort of things you should have done when you're young later in life because that's when you've got the money for it but um yeah and, and the, the philosophy the kind of mindset change came for me with with the fact that that my um brother at 21 so he's now how old is he now he's 24 at 21 he was he was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor um and that causes very much a mindset shift you know he had chemo he had treatment um and so so he's had his sort of life I th- I'm going to get this scientifically wrong now. I, I don't know if he's had his full amount of life treatment. So apparently there's a, there's a maximum amount of chemo or radiotherapy you can have in your lifetime. And he, I think he's on the edge of that, but it, 
I'm not trying to say that this is it's not a sad story. It's just something unfortunate that has happened. It's it's a fact of life that this sort of stuff happens. But what it does do is it makes you appreciate the the amount of time you have on this planet. And that made my mental attitude shift about actually what sh- what do I want to do with my life and what do I want to try and experience and enjoy. And that was probably one of the biggest factors in making me jump in and get a silly car now beyond everything else. It was the fact that, I, do you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm, you know, life can be so short. I'm just going to try and jump in and, and get get something fun now and, and kind of enjoy that sort of car ownership experience now whilst I can. Mm. I mean, that sounds quite morbid, but I'm trying to... <laughs> no, I, quite the opposite. I think that's quite inspirational. This gives us an insight into your personality there because... You know, I can already hear that you fancy a little bit of adrenaline in your life. Obviously, when you're buying V8 Jaguars and stuff. Um, So that daredevil side of you is going to be coming out very soon. Because as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, you were at Blyton Park practicing. And what you're practicing for is Formula Woman. Tell us all about it. So, yes, having got got the car, um, I was... I, I fancy just trying to. One, one of the things about the car ownership is that, as I'm sure you are aware, there are not many other women I've found so far who, one, either in, I think there's quite a few women who enjoy cars, but I've not really met or bumped into many women as part of car groups or anything, which is why I've joined the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club, um, just to kind of network with people and, and meet some really cool people who own, who own and enjoy their cars. And part of that was also feeling like I need to be able to uh, prove myself and improve my drive, prove that I can drive, improve my driving skills and experience, um, and also prove to myself that I can drive well and drive potentially professionally. Um, and I enjoy a bit of, you know, and sort of, I do like a bit of adrenaline. And so I signed up for Formula Woman. And Formula Woman is a competition run by, I believe it's founded by Gray and Glue. Um, and the last one ran in 2014. So it's the first time it's run for a while. And the entire premise of Formula Woman is they're trying to encourage women into motorsport. So what will the, the actual event, it's a competition lots of women enter and then you go through a series of tests and challenges and theory and fitness tests and you go to a track day and they look at your ability to drive and see if you've got any skills and then they will um narrow that pool of women down to i think it's 16 women and then from there you compete against each other for a potential race seat in the 2022 uh, gt cup race in a mclaren 570. Nice. You mentioned there potentially professionally. So is that a career change that you might like to see on the horizon, Emma, one day? Is that the end goal of all of this? You'd quite like to drive professionally and and sort of move into that side of your life? I wouldn't see it as a full career change. Um, I, I want to see where it goes mm-hmm. I and if I have the capability I want to see if I can I want to see if I also want to understand the challenges that other professional drivers face I want to experience the level of physical fitness or endurance that you have to have because it's very easy to sit there and watch um 
it's very easy to sit there and watch motorsport and watch people drive around the track and go, yeah, that looks really easy. And what I want to do is actually, re- I, want, I want to realize how challenging it is. I want to experience for myself the skill and what it takes to be a professional driver. And um, if the sort of outcome of that is that I am good enough and there is potential a seat for me to race professionally then absolutely yeah I'll, I will I would love to have the opportunity to race um I, I enjoy the sport I enjoy the sport aspect of it I enjoy competition I'm extremely competitive um and yeah so if there is an opportunity absolutely I'd take it um for me at the moment it's making sure it's it's, it's more of the do I have the skill to do it uh, and that's what the Blyton Park track day was it was my first time on track I've never actually I've never actually been on track before. Um, it was a lot of fun. And a few things came up f- for me from that, which is you, the, just the mental endurance required. After 15, minute, after 15 minutes on track, you're going, I'm actually quite tired and I'm starting to drop my concentration. So you realize quite quickly that, you know, you need to build your endurance. And there's lots of learning points. For me, hobbies and and driving and sports and the adrenaline process all comes together be- in, in the learning process, I enjoy learning and always learning new skills and, and learning new things and gaining things from, from life experiences. And I think that this experience will help me hopefully realize that I can drive, um, that I can enjoy my Jaguar in a different way than before if I didn't have the experience. Coming away from that Blighton Park track day, and especially with the advice with the other people who were there, who had more experience on track. It was a really eye-opening experience. And, you know, I learned lots of things that my car and me can do that it couldn't do before, that I, that I wouldn't have done before. And actually, I think everyone should do a track day. I think the driving skills you learn and sort of the arts instructor that was there, those skills can be applied on road as well. So I think there's, not only is it a competition and then the opportunity to be able to do something professionally, I think, I gain experience and it's almost, it's a humbling experience. You learn, you get to learn things that you don't know and you then get to apply that in life. And I always enjoy learning things. So yeah, for me, it's, it's a, it's a number of things I I get out of doing it. Well, you mentioned Graham Glue there. Of course, he was the guy behind the Series Elite Project 8 racing series uh, that sadly came to an end uh, last year, 2020. So uh, he knows a thing or two about racing Jaguars as well. And also, as you mentioned, Formula Woman hasn't run for a long time. So it's good to see it back and running a programme once again. So describe the process now then. Clearly, after Blyton Park, you've now experienced the racetrack through the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Uh, you mentioned our arts instructor, Ray Ingman, who was on site there helping people and giving people tips on the day. Presumably, that's your next step now to get your arts license. Um, yeah, so you, for the Formula Women um, competition, you don't need to go out and get your arts license yourself. That's something that, that's that process. They will take you through that process if they see you. Mm-hmm. Um, as being good enough the, the next steps for for me is making sure i understand uh the mclaren uh, 570 and the how that car behaves uh, and also trying to learn learn the tracks that i would potentially be racing on so um with kind of the industry I work in, I have quite a powerful computer. Um, and so I've actually gone out and I've, I've, I've built my own sim setup 
Um, so in the in the last few months, I've I've had a simulator constructed uh, with force feedback uh, wheel and, and sort of gearing and, and brake systems, and I am now practicing going round. I'm using a set of Corsa um, Competizione, and I'm getting sort of right in on learning on learning the tracks. So currently, I'm learning um, Alton Park, which actually having having learned Donington already and I'm kind of on Snetterton. I think Alton's probably my favourite at the moment. It's quite technical. I enjoy a cool I enjoy a good corner. If you get a corner right, it it feels so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alton Park has a- to be one of the most technical circuits the UK has to offer. It really has. And it's actually one of the circuits where, you know, Silverstone is all about the car and how much power it has and how much power you can get on the track. Alton Park is won or lost on driver input. It really is. And it's one of the most technical circuits in the country. Uh, it seems to be the one I'm most enjoying. I like a good corner. Um, something I noticed about being in, in, in a few car groups is a lot of people like to go forwards quite quickly, so they enjoy pure speed. And actually something I found, that's sort of my, my niche is I don't enjoy the pure speed because what I enjoy doing is overtaking people by being quicker in the corners. And it's a, uh, yeah, I, I, I love it. And Alton Park seems to be one I keep sticking to. So I've purchased, a, I've, I've purchased the McLaren 570 SIM setup um, so I'm now trying to, I know it's not exact, it's not like the real thing at all, but I'm now getting familiar with the tracks. I'm going through the sim setup. So I have some familiarity with the, with the track. I'm doing a lot of um, physical training as well. So I'm trying to get my cardio, my cardio up and also do doing, um, um, sort of leg training because I it's not going to be the same as Formula One, but I know the braking forces involved in Formula One are up to 160 kilos per leg for the braking aspect. So I'm just trying to get the um, the leg strength up uh, and also trying to get the endurance um, up as well through just, just improving my sort of physical performance uh, and working on neck muscles as well. I did um, a, bobsleigh, a bobsleigh session out in um, La Plan in France and the we I went down the track with a French Olympic driver and that was a very eye-opening experience with the forces involved. It was about three, three and a half G. Sometimes you can get up to four G on that track if you were to sort of push start it. Mm-hmm. And it felt like your neck was being snapped off. Um, and so I'm training, def- doing a lot of strengthening around sort of the upper body as well to make sure that I can, well, cope with being on track for a lot longer than 15 minutes <laughs> on a Blyton Park track day. <laughs> Is this where Formula Woman comes into its own then, do you think? Because I'm going to play devil's advocate with you, Emma, for a minute and just argue the the point, perhaps, that um, women's programmes into motorsport and women-only motorsport championships serve really only to further increase the divide between men and women competing in the sport by marking you out as different. And... Um, something you know that there's an argument against it is to say you know what we should be doing in fact is making sure that we're promoting women into the main sport the formula one um the the main championship and not segregating them out into other championships what what would your answer to that be um well it's a 
a complicated answer and I know it's a quite it can be quite a contentious topic as well um and I'm probably about to upset a few feminists so I'm so sorry um I'm sorry but I'm not actually um so <laughs> in, in terms of sport in general I am personally extremely competitive I will quite happily compete against men and I don't personally have an issue with it so if we take something like the Olympics and like a thousand meter sprint there is no there are physical differences between men and women we cannot we cannot deny that yeah. um and so if I was to put a woman against a man in a thousand meter sprint pretty much all the time not pretty much all the time the guy is going to win that that is it testosterone plays a huge part in in making men faster stronger bigger better um but some part of me goes well if i was taking part in the olympics i quite like to race against men even though i'm going to lose because then i feel like i'm on a level playing field i will I, I might have to work twice as hard but i'm going to enjoy racing alongside someone who even though they're physically different i'm i'm, I'm in the same race I'm, I'm enjoying the experience of racing alongside and trying to compete against all odds against another person but that's just me i enjoy being very sort of competitive i'd quite, I'd quite happily box against a guy <laughs> i don't care um in terms of in terms of motorsport itself i think it's a tough one i'm not i am not fully i'm not fully researched on the physical elements that come into motorsport and the differences and the, the scientific research if there is any between the differences of men and women and if that has an impact on the sport i don't know if there is a difference um but as far as i can see there doesn't seem to be anything apart from actually the weight differences um you know i, I think women have the potential to race against men in motorsport and yes i would like to see when men and women racing alongside each other obviously with things like weight um yeah you're gonna have to add it's unfair in that instance for men because women can come out a lot lighter mm. um, than men. Men have, men have to work harder. You know, most of the F1 drivers are quite lean um, and weigh a lot less than sort of like your average boxer or, you know, javelin thrower. They're all built to do different things. And I th so I think, you know, there'd have to be weight considerations taken into account. Women would probably need extra ballast on the cars to even it out and make it fair but i don't see why i don't see why not um mental i think it's driver skill i think that's that's something that can be between men and women um yeah i, I would like to see men and women race alongside each other i think um yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i've basically gone to a thought process there of trying to work out whether i think they should and I mean, yeah i, I, don't see I, why not. I mention it because throughout history there have been many successful women drivers yeah. Um, and many of them successful in a period where they really had to fight to get behind the wheel of a car and get on the grid. You know, mm. looking back in history, people like Annie Swasbolt, people like Pat Moss, uh, those pioneering female rally drivers of the 50s, right the way through to people like Vanina Ricks, who has had a fantastic career in sports cars, Susie Wolfe, people like that, you know. And, and you yes. are seeing these people as just racing drivers at big events. And I think my my worry, I guess, where I'm coming to with, with the argument against all women motorsport championships is it almost prevents women from 
playing a part in those big ticket events, those historic races like Le Mans, like the 24 Hours, like the yeah. Monaco Grand Prix. And we mustn't love, put I'd the barrier. Yeah, we mustn't put barriers by segregation. And, uh, you know, equally, you can't ever imagine a women's only Le Mans 24 hours carrying the same weight of winning it as the, you know, the one single race. So I think that that needs to be a consideration as, you know, on the one hand, it's great to get women into the sport. We have to do that. Of course we do. We need to promote wider audiences into motorsport generally um, Mm. of all genders and ethnicities as well, of course. But also it needs to be inclusive and that everyone comes together to experience those big wins of those big events that make motorsport so famous. Yeah, I, I agree. It would be nice to see everyone racing together. I think it's like, where do you start with that? Um, obviously, the last time that Formula Women ran was, was 2014. That's quite some time ago. So I guess what Graham was doing back then was pretty sort of, it was quite new. It was quite, to, to have a, a Formula Women opportunity back in 2014 um, was, was quite out there, I think. Mm. Um, I haven't seen anything else that was sort of representative we've now got the w series for formula women um um and yeah i I completely agree it'd be nice to see women race alongside but it's like how do you start that if the ultimate goal is for men and women to race alongside each other then where do you start um Obviously, it helps. Formula, I know Formula One has a bit of a different outlook. You need money. You need lots of money. You need sponsorship. And generally, I'm generalizing here, but you tend to have a bit of cash behind you anyway before you um, before you become an F1 driver. So there's, I guess, societal, financial, personal wealth, um, which tends to be, you know, you know, I think women still tend to inherit. Um, most most of their wealth but there are more self-made women coming into the sort of coming into light and that's great and maybe with as women become more prolific and sort of career driven and and successful then maybe we see sort of them being able to self-fund and start teams and other things as well but yeah I think we've got to start somewhere and if that and if that means for now having women only teams in order to be able to say hey look you can go into motorsport and you there are all of these different opportunities for women in motorsport then at least that's a door that is open for women to then be able to have the opportunity to one step through it and have a look and see if they like what they see um, and then take it from there and then take and then potentially get other opportunities opened up for them by taking part in this competition so i don't see it as a be all and end all to I don't see it as a permanent solution. I see it as a way in. It's a step in the right direction. If you could dial in your your position in motorsport, uh, your the car that you own, what you're racing, what you're doing in your life 10 years from now, what's your goals? What's your ambitions? Where would you like to be a decade on? Where would I like to be a decade on? Wow. Well, um, I would like my um, my own personal company to be successful. I'd like to employ people. I'd like to have that level of responsibility of, of um, and sort of value in in society and providing a service to people through my through my business. I'd like to see my business be successful. I'd like to have a, <laughs> and, you know, as a result of that success, I hope I can have a, a decent house, mainly with a huge garage. Um, <laughs> Uh, I would like to. I'd like to be able to collect um, cars. Um, 
I'm quite particular with how I've seen a lot of sort of custom personal collections and I'm very opinionated on how I would like my own collection to be. Um, and so I would love to be able to have just sort of collect some of the classics and, and, and have my own thing going on. I, I'd want mainly a turn. I, I want a turntable for a car, right? I want a turntable. I want to be able to have a drive with, with a lift on it so I can select one of my several cars. That'd be nice. It's mainly about the car collection, I think. So a giant car collection. I'd like to be able to have, um, you know, a, a race team. I'd like to be able to um, enjoy being able to sort of freely take cars on track and having the range of selections and building my sort of track skills from there. Yeah, I, I 10 years from now, it's quite hard to look that far ahead. I'm kind of, I live very much in the in the moment. Um, I hope, well, it's happy, happiness, success, and a car collection. That That is what I'm aiming for in life. <laughs> the car collection, of course, leading to the happiness and success many, many times. But, uh, I, you know, it's, it's fantastic to talk to you, Emma. It's been a great chat. And ultimately, you know, car culture, especially historic vehicles, is under threat as a culture, as, as a way of life. And uh, we've got some huge challenges ahead of us in the coming years, in our next decade, to make sure that not only we are able to have the freedoms to do what we love to do, but also that, you know, we can preserve the more historic racing cars and Jaguars that we like to talk about here on the podcast and also preserve our way of life for the future. And the only way we can do that is to increase the amount of engagement that we have in clubs like the Jaguar Enthusiast Club is to throw the net wider and appeal to more people of different genders, backgrounds, ethnicities, different walks of life and bring them all together under a passion for Jaguar. And I think it's really great and refreshing to talk to someone like you, Emma, who represents a, a new audience coming into historic vehicles, into Jaguar and into car clubs. No, th thanks very much, Wayne. I think just, just to quickly comment on that is before joining the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club, I didn't have an appreciation for classic cars. I was very much about the modern cars. I didn't understand the desire and the love for classic cars so much. And actually after being on the Blyton Park track day and meeting those people, again, it's those stories, it's the people, it's, it's the blood, sweat and tears that's gone into these cars. And actually some of the old fashioned, good old fashioned mechanical engineering, as opposed to the electrical stuff that goes on nowadays in cars, I think a lot of that is at risk of, of being lost. And yeah, I think through joining this club, I have learned an awful lot and I've still got an awful lot to learn from members in the club about what those cars historically have to offer. And, you know, I can see the development pattern from the E-type to my F-type and that's important. And I think we need to preserve that. And, and as a result of that, the Jaguar Enthusiast Club seems to be such a good place to, to come and learn about that history and therefore teaching me then how to preserve that going forward for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And of course, uh, you can find out more about Formula Woman from formulawoman.co.uk. Worth having a look, especially if you fancy giving it a go. Perhaps if Emma's inspired you to have a go at motorsport as well, as Emma explained, the winner will go on to race that McLaren in GT4. And there are 16 finalists that will be up for that ultimate prize. And out of those 16, I know who I will be cheering for now. It is Emma Price. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. Cheers.
You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. For this week's podcast, I'm recording this up at Castle Coombe. As I said in last week's episode, we managed to get a track day. Um, We've been really struggling to get test days and track days at the moment. Um, I think it's the same for everyone. Any events um, seem to be crazily busy at the moment. So we've got a track day up at Coombe. Um, Looks a bit damp, actually, but um, I think it's going to clear up later. So um, we've got four cars um, here on the track day today. Um, obviously we're going to be testing my car and just getting plenty of laps really out of the thing and just making sure that we get no further issues obviously we told you about the the sensor issues that was um, causing us all the issues at Donington um, which we obviously now rectified and had up on the dyno so really today the plan is just to get settled back into the car really um, do a couple of um, geometry and maybe some damper setting changes around Castle Coombe just to try and find a little bit of time. It's quite hard to do this on track day, sometimes it can be quite busy, but really we just want to get plenty of laps under the car's belt just to make sure everything is absolutely perfect. Um, And then we can have a look over the the data when we get back and on day and see if there's any improvements we can make. So, um, and then obviously once we've, um, if it's all successful today, um, we'll get the car back up in the workshop before um, Castle Coombe, that's on the third and fourth. So we've got a little bit of time um, to then hopefully get anything, if we do have any issues, rectified so i'll keep you updated um throughout the day um but i'm just going to get myself ready now and and go out for a few laps and uh see how we get on um we've got matthew coming down today um we have made the decision um for his car not to race at carlsacoon which is a bit of a shame but we're just not going to have time to get all of the work done and test it we're going to get the work done before the weekend um, but the actual testing is just not achievable. So we've brought the XJ40 down and Matthew's gonna do some laps in that. Um, we've made that decision early on really. And we've also got a new car um, that's out, um, a guy called Andrew, who's first time into the series. So um, we're gonna take that for some laps as well. So it's gonna be a busy day um, and fingers crossed it dries up. So it's now lunchtime up at Castle Coombe and I've been out in the XJR6 all morning. I've done about three sessions in total. Um, it's open pit lane, so I've been able to do a good sort of 15, 20 minutes in each session. So the first one this morning, um, to be honest, I just took it pretty easy um, and just progressively built up speed with the car just to make sure some everything was absolutely fine. And the good news is, is so far, everything has been absolutely like clockwork. So all the temperature sensors, everything's been reading correctly. Power delivery been, has been absolutely perfect, and the car setup actually feels really, really good. Um, so I'm not making a huge amount of changes. Um, after the first session, I went out again um, and started putting some quicker laps. And it's always a bit of a battle here at Coombe, as I've said before. It is quite a bumpy circuit in places, um, and some corners here, um, such as Quarry, naturally unsettle the car. So. It is quite often awkward to get a, a setup around it. So we, we've gone out with the base setting that we used at Donington. Um, I normally actually soften the rear end of the car a fair bit here, but I'm going to do something a little bit different and stiffen that slightly because it seems like, although it feels more comfortable to drive softer, um, running it, it does feel like I do need to stiffen the back up at, on some of the smoother parts of the circuit. So 
we're going to stiffen the rear suspension um, for this afternoon. I'm just going to see how that how that works. I've done it. I've gone up a couple of clicks on the rear since this morning. I can already feel that it's it's better, and you can see on the lap splits that it is quicker in certain sectors. So um, we're just going to see how that plays out. But other than that, we've had all the wheels off, the bonnet off, and a good check around it, and everything so far is performing as it should. So. Um, fingers crossed it's the same for the for the race but you never know with racing um, but we're doing everything we can here um, we're going to get the car back to the workshop um, next week um, and I'll talk about if we find anything on the car but we'll then go through all the preparations but so far so good so I've got the rest of the afternoon really is just play around with some setups but it's going really really well um, we're going to also scrub some tyres in this afternoon as well. Um, one of the only very small points that we've picked up on is there's a little bit of a leak coming from the cam cover. I'm not sure why that's decided to do that, um, but that'll be one of the jobs we tackle next week. It's nothing too major to be concerned about. Um, you can just smell a little bit of oil and you can just see around one of the fixings at the front there, it's just started. So we'll catch that before that becomes a problem. Um, but other than that, it is going absolutely great. Matthew's been out on the XJ40 and same with him. He's, he's had no real issues. He's had a bit of time to get settled into the car. Um, so we're going to have to get him up on the ramps and do full inspection. So hopefully we don't find anything untoward. But so far, so good. We're just going to carry on as we are, get as many laps under the belt as I can. And fingers crossed, we'll get the car absolutely dialed, ready for Castle Coombe on the third and fourth. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.